Good afternoon, Seattle. Josh Hammer back in the saddle for Jason Rance filling in for you. I'll be with you for the next three days, today, tomorrow, and Thursday. Jason is, of course, out with his brand new book, now available everywhere, What's Killing America Inside the Radical Left's Tragic Destruction of Our Cities. Go ahead and check out Jason's book. I'm honored to have the opportunity to fill in for Jason. Let's not waste any more time. Let's find out what's trending. What's trending? Let's get political. So this past weekend saw some new polls come in about Joe Biden, Donald Trump, and the 2024 election. And it's been a couple of days, and this still continues to dominate much of the discussion, much of the headlines for the political class, the Beltway chattering class and all. So just to kind of go back and review some of these new polls that have come in recently. So NBC News had a poll that concluded recently that showed that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are in a dead heat, 46 to 46 in the national horse race number. And then the poll that got even more attention was this poll that was released on Sunday, an ABC News Washington Post poll that showed Donald Trump up by 10 points on Joe Biden, 52 to 42. That poll has gotten a lot of attention for a lot of different reasons. First of all, it obviously is a bit of an outlier, but you know, truthfully, it's actually not a a massive, massive outlier. I'm looking right now at the at the average on Real Clear Politics, which is the kind of go-to place for tallying up and averaging out the political polling data. And if you look at the Real Clear Politics average, which again is the golden standard here. It's showing right now Donald Trump up 1.5 points over Joe Biden if, of course, that does indeed end up being the 2024 re-election matchup, which is an open question, obviously. I mean, Trump is facing these all all these indictments, 91 criminal counts, four separate indictments. Who knows if there will be more in the tank for Ron DeSantis if he can mount a charge in Iowa. We'll get into all of this and more perhaps later in the show, As and Joe Biden, of course, has many of his – Of his own glaring problems. But the point is that if the current polling is ultimately reality, and if we do get a 2020 rematch in 2024 between the former president Donald Trump and the current president Joe Biden, the real clear politics average right now shows Trump up one and a half points. And in addition to that ABC News Washington Post poll, there was a poll that also concluded just this past week from the relatively new media publication, The Messenger, which is working with a pollster fairly well known for those of us who follow this stuff closely called Harris X. That has Trump up five points. There is another Harvard Harris poll from earlier in the month that has Trump up four. So, yes, the ABC News Washington Post poll that everyone has been talking about is a bit of an outlier, but it's really not a massive, massive outlier. Now, some of the actual crosstabs, if you go in there and you look at some of it, don't seem to hold up. So, for example, they have Trump winning those voters under the age of 35, I believe, was the mark off by 20 points. I, I, I mean, I, I'm sorry to whoever is doing the polling for ABC News and Washington Post. But that is just simply implausible. That that is facially implausible. Anyone who follows anything about how millennials vote, about how Gen Z votes in particular, you you can go back into the 2020 election cross tabs, look at how that sub-35 demographic, especially that 18 to 29 Gen Z demographic, 
And pure common sense should really dictate that Trump winning under 35 by 20 points is just way, way off. And the percentage of uh, of non-white voters, of Hispanics and black voters voting for Trump in the ABC News Washington Post poll was likely a little inflated as well. However, however, and here is a, a key point. The underlying trends, and this is what you have to do when you start looking at political polls. You can't get too absorbed into the nitty-gritty. You can't get too absorbed into the crosstabs, the sample size. Was it registered voters, likely voters? Was it a phone poll? Was it an online text message poll? Things like that. This is what the real political nerds tend to obsess over. But it really is more important to look at trend lines. What is the overall trend as to some of these voting demographics and things like that. And the trends for Joe Biden are really, really bad. So this ABC News Washington Post poll has Joe Biden's approval rating in the mid to high 30s. That is consistent with a lot of other recent polling. That is really, really bad for an incumbent president to put it mildly. Some other polling has had him in the, in the early 40s, but whether it's the mid-30s into the early 40s, regardless if you are that far underwater as far as your approval rating as an incumbent seeking re-election, historically speaking, you are in bad shape. The magic number historically for incumbents running for re-election is you try to see whether the approval rating is 50% or higher. That's not a universal rule, but historically speaking, it has often been true. Biden is way, way below that. In the, in the case of the 2020 election, Trump's approval rating average was also well below 50%, and he, of course, lost. So that historical heuristic did hold up in 2020. But the the news for Biden gets even worse when you start to go into some of the issues specifically. So that ABC News uh, – yeah, that ABC News Washington Post poll had Biden at 23% approval rating on, the, on immigration on border in particular. I mean that is just astounding. I mean that is a catastrophically poor approval rating – when it comes to the southern border and you know how could you fault anyone for for thinking that i mean frankly i want to know what the other 77% of americans are thinking those who who have any other thoughts other than that i mean i want to know who, what that 23% is thinking about the people who approve i mean the situation there is as dire as it gets we are facing unprecedented flows of course of, of illegal aliens flooding across the border. People like Mayor Eric Adams in New York City are sounding the alarm. Kathy Hockle, Chuck, uh, Chuck Schumer, I mean, I mean, to a lesser extent, he really needs to get more active. But Andrew Cuomo, certainly much of the New York state Democratic brass at this point is something in in an all out war of sorts against Joe Biden. Jared Polis, the moderate ish governor of Colorado, has been very critical of Joe Biden's immigration policies. Many other Democrats are starting to sound the alarm here. And we're starting to see some increased chatter as well from people who might actually try to come out of the Democratic Party to potentially challenge Joe Biden for the nomination. So thus far, we've had Robert F. Kennedy Jr., of course, who is formally running as a Democrat. The Democratic Party does not seem particularly interested in giving RFK Jr. a platform to air his views. That is unfortunate because RFK Jr., no matter what you might think of him, his views do deserve being heard. Of course, the Democrats don't want to hear from him because of his various heresies when it comes to the vaccine and issues like that, his adamant opposition to big tech censorship and various other 
Democratic Party third rail icons. But they really should hear him out. But anyway, other than RFK Jr. and Marianne Williamson, you haven't seen a whole lot of formal entrance to the Democratic field. That could be changing. That could be changing. The the scuttlebutt of late is that Dean Phillips, the congressman from Minnesota, is increasingly eyeing getting into this field, which which would be pretty rare. Pretty rare to see a sitting congressman of the incumbent president's party try to try to primary that incumbent president. I mean, especially for the Democratic Party, which in the modern day and age, in the post-Obama era. It seems like Democrat voters and politicians really do tend to fall in line with what their betters, with what their elites, and especially with just the folks who populate the Obama-Biden world with what they tell them to do. The really interesting question, which has reached something of a fever pitch over the past 48 to 72 hours or so, is whether Gavin Newsom – is going to get into this race, whether Democrats are trying, of course, to get Biden to go out of the race because of Gavin Newsom. And why has that reached a fever pitch? Well, that's reached a fever pitch because it has now been formally announced that the rumors are true, that Gavin Newsom, the governor of California, and Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, are going to hash it out. They're going to hash it out live on Sean Hannity's Fox News show on November 30th in prime time, the debate will be at a to-be-determined location in the state of Georgia. There's been a lot of chatter about this. And, you know, why would Gavin Newsom be doing this unless he clearly has presidential aspirations? And the answer of that is, well, I mean, Gavin Newsom clearly does have presidential aspirations. The only relevant question is whether those presidential aspirations will cash out in terms of an actual run this cycle or simply waiting his turn, so to speak, for the 2028 presidential election cycle. Now, it seems as obvious as ever that many Democratic Party elites want want Joe Biden to get out of this race. So you had David Ignatius, the venerable kind of shall we say, establishment-friendly, certainly national security, state-friendly, Washington Post columnist. He explicitly called recently for Joe Biden to not run for re-election, and he said that it pained him very much to, to say that. He is an unabashed supporter of Joe Biden's, but the basic argument from elite liberals is that Donald Trump, who is the frontrunner for the Republican nomination, is such an existential threat to democracy that therefore they cannot take any chances with Joe Biden. And interestingly, it seems like many around Joe Biden are, are, are starting to realize just how just how liable he he really is. Now, a, a shockingly high percentage of voters again, going back to the polls, say that Joe Biden is too old to serve another term. The percentage of Americans who say that is roughly two-thirds. It is usually between 65 and 70 percent, depending on the specific poll. Uh, 75 to 80 percent, at least of Republicans, oftentimes even higher. I mean, a, a, a large majority of Democrats are consistently telling pollsters that Joe Biden is too old to be the nominee and that they do not want 
Joe Biden to actually be the nominee. And his team around him has started to try to go on the offensive or at least the defensive with respect to the age issue. So, for example, his team apparently, I saw earlier today, apparently is deliberately trying to preclude, to avoid Joe Biden walking up and down long flights of stairs in public, in in front of the camera, for the very simple and obvious reason that they do not want Joe Biden to fall down again, as he has done many times, perhaps most recently in uh, in Colorado Springs, Colorado, when he was handing out diplomas at the U.S. Air Force Academy back in June. But just over the weekend, there was a, another video of him coming down the plane where he almost falls. He has to grab the railing. I mean, I mean, the man is clearly just struggling in many ways. We all remember when he fell off the stationary bicycle, he literally an unmoving bicycle. He fell off that in his Delaware Beach home or biking near his Delaware Beach home in the summer of 2022, last summer. His team is also having him wear tennis sneaker-esque shoes. I don't know if they're literally tennis sneakers, but at least they will have the soles of tennis sneakers Highly unusual, to put it mildly, for a president of the United States to be walking around with footwear that remotely resembles tennis sneakers. But that is sure enough what Joe Biden is is going to be doing. Again, this is all because they do not want him to fall because his team is sensitive to the age issue. Now, going back to Gavin Newsom, you kind of have to wonder here for a second as to what he really is thinking. Does he actually want the David Ignatius of the world to be right here and to get in and slide in as the 2024 nominee? Now, the reason that I have always been skeptical of all the Gavin Newsom talk, because there's been a lot of Gavin Newsom talk for a very long time now. He has very clearly tried to pick a war with Ron DeSantis doing the whole blue state versus red state thing, California versus Florida. And, you know, look, it's going to it's going to make for. It's going to make for good television. I mean, I look forward to to watching that. I look forward to watching that debate between Ron DeSantis and Gavin Newsom. But would he really be doing this if he weren't trying to slide in this cycle? And from Joe Biden's perspective, are you even happy that Gavin Newsom is doing this? I mean, I've seen some Democratic media figures try to spin it as prominent Biden surrogate Gavin Newsom will debate Ron DeSantis. I mean, that's very – that's very bizarre framing, isn't it? I mean, if you wanted a, a Biden surrogate, you, you wouldn't get the the governor of the most populous state in the country who very clearly has his own presidential aspirations and who is clearly trying to supplant, whether it is this election or the next one, a president of the United States who is quite clearly senile and who vast majorities of voters tell pollsters that is too old and they do not want to see him. The problem with all the Gavin Newsom chatter is that it assumes really just blindly that Gavin Newsom is indeed the logical successor to Joe Biden if he were to be severely hospitalized, if he were to bow out for various other reasons, things like that. And I have always thought that that is just not necessarily true, or at least it's not necessarily nearly as obvious as people make it out to be. And the very simple reason for that is because we're forgetting here about the vice president of the United States, Kamala Harris. Now, Kamala Harris may be very unpopular. She may be very ineffective. She may be a terrible manager. Her office 
leaks like a sieve with all the leaks that we've seen to Politico, CNN, New York Times, all of that. But she's still the vice president of the United States, and more to the point, in a political party that is as intersectional, as woke, as identity politics-driven as the modern Democratic Party is, it is virtually impossible to see how Democratic elites could try to somehow sideline Kamala Harris without really, really angering large swaths of the base. And recall, this is already happening at a time. Now, again, these specific numbers might be overstated. I think that ABC Washington Post poll is overstating it, but it's already happening at a time where larger swaths than we would expect of non-white voters are indeed gravitating over to the Republican Party. And this is happening in basically direct response to the Democrats' great awakening, the, the the culture war stuff, transgender ideology, critical race theory, DEI, all of that. All of these woke issues that are so heavily divorced from the day-to-day -day economic concerns that working class people face, whether it is inflation, whether it is crime – whether it is a porous southern border, whether it is wage stagnation, things of that nature. And you do see this trend of minorities, especially young men, especially young Hispanic and young black men who are gravitating towards the Republican Party. And at a time like that, I think leapfrogging Kamala Harris for Gavin Newsom is, is really something that the Democrats would do at their severe, severe peril. Now, Joe Biden, for what it's worth, officially shows no signs whatsoever, of course, of bowing out of the race, no matter how much Democratic elites of various stripes might want him to bow out of the race, no matter how much Gavin Newsom deep down might want him to bow out of the race. He is instead running full throttle still on Bidenomics. That is the ad that they rolled out a few weeks ago during the NFL season opener. They are touting Bidenomics. They are running really hard on Bidenomics. They're trying to make you think that Bidenomics is just the new Reaganomics, basically. They're trying to make you think that the economy is great, and we all know that this is just a straight-up lie. The United States formally entered a recession last year, back-to-back -back quarters of negative GDP growth, which was the universally accepted definition of a recession before Corrine Jean-Pierre, Brian Deese, and various other wackos in the Biden White House tried to redefine the term recession before our very eyes. We all know that inflation reached four-decade high, 9.1% annualized last year at its highest. But they're running really hard on that. And part of what Biden is, is doing this week to try and hammer home this Bidenomics message is he's going up – to Michigan to actually walk the picket line with the protesters in the UAW, the United Auto Workers, who have been striking in Michigan. Let, let's go ahead and listen to what President Biden actually said when he addressed the protesters there. Stick with it, because you deserve the significant raise you need and other benefits. Let's get it! Yeah. Let's get back who we lost, okay? Yeah. So I don't have a huge, huge issue with this on the merits. Now, some of what the UAW is demanding is clearly, clearly a lot, to put it mildly. I mean, every negotiation, of course, you you start out with, with your starting points and you meet somewhere in the middle. Some of what they're demanding when it comes to... 
when it comes to pensions seems to me to be a little much. The issue is that this is Joe Biden, who, of course, came to fame as working class Joe from Scranton, Pennsylvania, who touted his working class roots his whole political career. He is trying to come home and really kind of drill that message in. The problem is that it's not going to resonate. It is not going to work because Joe Biden's policies have been manifestly and emphatically anti-working class, anti-middle class. There is no policy that is more detrimental to working class voters, to those who are who are retired, living on fixed income, than mass inflation. After all, you know, wage, wages are sticky. How can wages be expected to rise as much as inflation? And sure enough, there was real inflation-adjusted wage declines for most of Joe Biden's presidency, a trend that only very recently has started to turn around. Talk about the war on hydrocarbons, the war on fossil fuels, the nixing of the Keystone XL pipeline, the gutting of federal leases up in northern Alaska, Anwar, things like that. These electric vehicle mandates, which are a huge point of concern for the UAW workers. So I don't think that voters are gullible enough where they are going to necessarily buy what Joe Biden is trying to sell here when it comes to his purported working class bona fides. It is interesting, certainly, that Donald Trump is planning to go to Michigan right after Joe Biden to 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 effectively do the same thing and try to make a stand with the workers there. It seems to me like that door is wide open, it is really wide open and really remarkable that the union has not yet endorsed Joe Biden's reelection campaign. Anyway, we will be paying attention to this and more, of course, over the next few weeks, and next few months. This hour of the Jason Rand Show is brought to you by American Water Damage Restoration. It's American Water Damage Restoration. I'm Josh Hammer filling in for Jason Rance. We'll be right back. Welcome back to the Jason Rand Show. Josh Hammer filling in for Jason. You can check out my own show, The Josh Hammer Show, everywhere you get your podcast. Jason, of course, is out for the very exciting launch of his new book, What's Killing America. So as we roll into the second half of the first hour of our program, we're going to stay on the topic here of of Joe Biden, who is facing attacks every which way you can possibly look. Really, the entire Biden family is facing attacks every which way you look. Of course, Hunter Biden is now facing three criminal counts on the gun charges that U.S. attorney and quote-unquote special counsel David Weiss finally indicted him on over the past couple of weeks. I'm saying I'm saying quote-unquote special counsel there because you know this is not a point that I think that people make often enough. It's that it is directly contrary to U.S. law to a a federal regulation is directly contrary to name a sitting United States attorney as a special counsel and a special counsel probe. I'm not sure when we got into the habit of just ignoring this, uh, but whether it was John Durham, I suppose, or David Weiss now, it's very, very bizarre that both parties and people are just openly flouting what is a pretty clearly worded regulation about how special counsels are, are supposed to come from outside of the government. Anyway, Hunter Biden is facing three criminal indictments nonetheless, or three criminal charges, I should say, part of one indictment when it comes to his 
alleged purchasing of a firearm when he was a crack cocaine addict. I'm saying alleged to be polite here, but the dude literally admitted. I mean, Hunter Biden literally admitted in his memoir that he was using drugs at the time that he purchased this firearm. Seems like an open and shut case to me. As for the big guy, as for Joe Biden, the big news this week when it comes to attacks on him is that House Republicans are finally going to get their impeachment inquiry underway. So there was a lot of talk for a very long time. There was a lot of back and forth between Kevin McCarthy and some of his far right is the way that you typically hear referred to his House Freedom Caucus colleagues. There's a lot of debate going back and forth for a long time as to whether or not McCarthy would actually go ahead and give the green light on a formal impeachment inquiry. Well, he finally did so earlier this month in a fairly terse press conference. And sure enough now, Congressman James Comer of Kentucky, who is the Republican chair of the House Oversight Committee, he released a statement yesterday explaining who the witnesses are going to be. So this is our very first hearing. Pretty exciting stuff. It'll be streamed before the House Oversight Committee this Thursday morning at 10 a.m. Eastern time. So the first three witnesses are Bruce Dubinsky, who is a forensic accounting expert. It is going to be Eileen O'Connor, a former assistant attorney general at the Department of Justice's tax division. And finally, Jonathan Turley, who is a law professor at George Washington University Law School. Those of you who watch Fox News will certainly recognize Jonathan Turley, who is really all over the network and has been all over the network since at least the Trump administration era. He has been a, a, an opponent of the Trump impeachment efforts and really look forward to his testimony as well. He has previously testified before this very committee when it comes to just the general weaponization of the federal government, which is a topic that as a civil libertarian, John Turley has spoken and written at great length on. So once again, the the actual allegations that have led to this impeachment inquiry is essentially that Joe Biden has been bribed. That's it. I mean, that is the very simple and straightforward argument that we have seen thus far. Now, again, this is just this is just an impeachment inquiry. It is not the formal drafting of articles of impeachment. So the way this actually works in practice, if you want to take the inquiry to its next step, is that the House Judiciary Committee will start to actually formally draft articles of impeachment, and they will list the alleged crimes that this president has committed and then toss it over to the Senate for an actual trial. We all know how that's going to end, by the way. Obviously, Chuck Schumer controls the Senate. This thing will never see the light of day in the upper chamber. But the alleged conduct is pretty straightforward. It is that Joe Biden, via his addle-brained and wildly corrupt prodigal son, Hunter Biden, was directly benefited on a monetary, pecuniary, and other benefit level from foreign entities. Now, if you look at the actual impeachment criteria laid down in the Constitution, we usually impeach presidents in this country under the catch-all phrase, high crimes and misdemeanors. That is usually what people cite. That is certainly what Democrats cited when they tried to impeach Trump twice. Some argue that high crimes and misdemeanors under the constitutional language actually requires 
a black letter criminal statutory violation under the U.S. code. I have heard Professor Alan Dershowitz argue that uh, with respect. I think that that is wrong. I think that Alexander Hamilton writing in the Federalist number 65 in the Federalist Papers basically says quite explicitly that high crimes and misdemeanors is meant to be kind of something loftier, just a fundamental breaching or betraying of the public trust. So that is usually where you see impeachments in this country go. But here it seems like they're actually going to probably, again, we're just speculating here because we haven't actually reached this yet, but they're probably going to impeach on bribery. So the actual clause, Article 2, Section 4 of the Constitution says, quote, the president, vice president, and all civil officers of the United States shall be removed from office on impeachment for and conviction of treason, bribery, or other high crimes misdemeanors. So again, the latter most catch-all phrase is usually what does the work here. Here it seems like bribery might do the work. And there's an increasingly hard to avoid, I would say unavoidable amount of evidence that the Biden family really has been bribed in many ways. So go back to as early as June, where we saw Senator Chuck Grassley, who is now, you know, he's now 90 years old. I mean, this is not kind of a young, up and coming, you know, MAGA type senator. It was back in June that Chuck Grassley was saying that he had seen a lightly redacted FBI form FD-1023, courtesy of a whistleblower, that had showed that both Joe and Hunter Biden were receiving $5 million in personal funds from Mikola Zochevsky, the founder of Burisma. More recently, over the past month or so, we have seen that there are thousands and thousands of emails that Joe Biden sent when he was vice president, vice president of the United States using a pseudonym, not using his real name. The New York Post a few weeks ago claimed to have roughly 5,300 emails or claimed to know about 5,300 emails where Joe Biden, when he was active vice president, was not using his real name. And oh, by the way, the National Archives was refusing to turn them over. Pretty suspicious, no? And as the case may be, literally just an hour and a half ago, as we were getting ready to come on the air, Fox News has broken another exclusive story. This is a an excellent piece of reporting over at foxnews.com from a reporter by the name of Brooke Singman. This is how she begins her exclusive report. Hunter Biden received wires that originated in Beijing for more than $250,000 from Chinese business partners during the summer of 2019. Wires that listed the Delaware home of Joe Biden as the beneficiary address for the funds. Now, this is coming from Congressman Comer and the Oversight Committee. So let me just say that again, because this is pretty explosive stuff. Hunter Biden receives $250,000 in wires from some shady Beijing China Chinese Communist Party presumably affiliated account from his quote-unquote Chinese business partners that listed Joe Biden's Wilmington, Delaware home as the address for the funds to go. I mean, what the heck? Like, seriously, what the actual heck? Now, the reason that I and many others have been so passionate about Congressman Comer and the House Oversight Committee, and if it gets that far, House Judiciary Committee, 
ultimately following this thing through to its logical conclusion is that if you look at the countries that Hunter Biden's shady foreign business dealings were involved in, and obviously, based on what we just read, this goes all the way up to the top to the big guy, Joe Biden. You know, these are not small random countries. These are not random Pacific Island countries home to 10, 20,000 people in the Lesser Antilles, West Indies, Sub-Saharan Africa countries that people tend to forget about. No, we're talking here about, well, multiple countries, but one of them being Ukraine. I just mentioned Mykola Lochevsky and Burisma. Why is Ukraine relevant? Oh, yeah, Ukraine is relevant because we're shipping – 150 plus billion dollars in aid to this wildly corrupt country in a conflict that has seemingly no end. Whose president Zelensky was just here begging for more aid as recently as, as it turns out, last week. Now we'll have more on that in the next hour of the show. But is there any more country that is directly relevant to know whether the current commander in chief? As senile as he is, Joe Biden, whether he is actually compromised, whether he has been corrupted and bribed, I can't think of any other country that is so directly relevant for the public to know. And as for this Fox News report that just came in across the transom, continues a very similar trend as well. China is the other country increasingly – that is getting all the headlines here when it comes to Hunter Biden corruption, Joe Biden being involved, Hunter using his phone to say, oh, I'm standing next to my father, some sort of crass intimidation tactic. Well, why is China relevant? Oh, yeah, China is relevant because China is by far, by orders of magnitude, the United States' number one threat, adversary, geopolitical foe, all of that in this century. Especially at a time, I should point out, that it looks increasingly likely that Xi Jinping, the head honcho in Beijing, is getting his military, the People's Liberation Army, ready to potentially march across the Straits of Taiwan to amount a full-scale amphibious invasion of Taiwan at some point, God forbid, in the, in the not-so-distant future. Wouldn't you want to know, at a time like that, whether the president of the United States, the commander-in-chief, is compromised when it comes to this country? I mean, God forbid, if he is really that compromised when it comes to China, would he just let Xi Jinping just march on in without even sending any kind of deterrent message? Would he tell our allies in the region, South Korea, Japan, Philippines, and so forth, to stand down? And let China, quote unquote, reunify Taiwan? I mean, probably not, right? These are these are hypotheticals that are admittedly a little extreme. But you get the point. We the people deserve to know this. So I give a lot of credit to Congressman Comer and the Oversight Committee. I really do look forward to this hearing and future hearings on this subject. Join us for the next KTTH Freedom Series. Saving Washington State as we hold politicians accountable, provide solutions to the state's biggest challenges, and chart a new course for our state. Hosted by Jason Rance and Brian Suits at the historic Everett Theater on October 24th. 
from 7 to 9 p.m. Special guests will take the stage to offer honest criticisms, answer tough questions, and inspire us to demand the reforms we all deserve. Tickets are on sale today for $7.70 plus fees. That's $7.70 plus fees or for an added fee, a ticket plus an autographed copy of Jason's new book, What's Killing America. VIP will still be on sale too. You can have a choice of seats, private meet and greet with other VIPs, and a personalized autographed copy of that book. Get your tickets at KTTH.com. Welcome back to the Jason Rand Show. Josh Hammer filling in for Jason, who is, of course, out with his brand new book this week. I'll be with you today, tomorrow, and Thursday. So as we head towards the end of the first hour of the program, another news item that is starting to reach a fever pitch of sorts, of course, is the latest standoff over the government funding. Is there going to be a shutdown? Is there not going to be a government shutdown? It's you know it's, it's funny. Sometimes it's kind of hard to keep track of all the various crises that are happening on Capitol Hill at any given moment. The Biden impeachment inquiry, of course, has gotten a, a lot of headlines. It's only going to generate more headlines. But yeah, I mean, it's entirely possible. I would say probably likely that the U.S. government is actually going to shut down after funding starts to dry up this September 30th. Now, earlier today, again, really just as we were starting to get ready to, to come on the air, another bit of breaking news happened is that Fox News also reported that Senate Democrats and Senate Republican leadership have announced that they are planning to pass a CR, a, a continuing resolution to keep the government funded past September 30th, apparently this evening. So potentially while we are on air or potentially, I would say more likely after we are on air, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer and Minority Leader Mitch McConnell are going to get a vote on this CR to get this thing funded past past uh, past the expiration, which is this September 30th, this Saturday. Now, that's really going to up the pressure on Kevin McCarthy. That That is going to substantially put more pressure on House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who is dealing with a, a band of conservative rebels led by Congressman Matt Gates of Florida who are preventing any votes as of now on appropriation measures unless they get various XYZ items. Now, McCarthy has a very, very narrow margin in his House caucus. He could, of course, he could, of course, just do what House Republican speakers in similar situations have done. Indeed, he could do exactly what Speaker McCarthy himself did when there was a similar debt ceiling fight just earlier this year in May and June. And that would be to reach across the aisle and to work with Democrats as opposed to keeping his own house in order. The problem for Kevin McCarthy is how many times can you actually do that? How many times can you make a deal with the folks on the other side of the aisle to the exclusion of your hardest and most obstinate members while retaining the gavel? Recall that one of the items that got Kevin McCarthy the speakership bid 
during those 15 to 20 ballots, that intense days-long negotiation back in January, one of the concessions that he was forced to make to folks like Thomas Massey and Chip Roy and, and Byron Donalds and Gates, Lauren Boebert, all of them who were holding on at time, he restored the single – member motion to vacate, which is a fancy parliamentary term for basically saying that uh, that it, all it takes is, is is one voter to force a, a house-wide vote to vacate the, the chair. And of course, given the narrow margin in the House, if Democrats all line up to oppose the speaker, all it takes is a handful of House rebels to potentially dethrone Ken McCarthy, who has really worked his whole political life for this moment. One thing that I found very interesting when I saw this, I saw a poll from the morning consult this morning, which showed that only one in three voters, roughly roughly a third, would blame congressional Republicans for a shutdown. It's 34 percent. And 23 percent, it turns out, would blame President Biden. 21 percent would blame Democrats in Congress. So it added up, that's 44%, so the remainder would blame everyone or no one or some combination thereof. Now, that is that is against the historic way this thing tends to play out. Historically, when there are government shutdowns, Republicans tend to bear the brunt of the blame. It's unclear at best, I would say, whether or not shutdowns politically benefit Republicans. I'm thinking back to the Tea Party era shutdown fight. 2011, 2013, with the with the filibuster of Obamacare, things like that. It's unclear at best, but based on the polling right now, it doesn't seem like Republicans actually would take a huge hit. Part of the problem, part of the problem is that it doesn't really seem obvious to me, as a polite way of saying it, what Matt Gates and the conservative rebels are actually looking for. If they had a plausible end game insight, if they had a plausible goal here, if they want to actually accomplish something, I would be all on board, assuming, of course, that what they were seeking was rational. And in many ways, what they seem like they are seeking is rational in virtually everything they say, from what I can tell, actually, whether it comes to slowing down, if not ending the Ukraine boondoggle, if it comes to getting more funding for the border, stopping the the relocations of illegal aliens flooding across the border, things like that. All of this is eminently reasonable. The problem is obviously just the math. The math just doesn't work out here. If you have a very narrow majority in the House and the Senate's controlled by the other party, it's just not obvious to me how any of this can get accomplished. So. I, you know, I'm not opposed to a government shutdown. I'm really not. But given the given the Ukraine funding demands, given the immigration situation and that fact that, that is where most of the hard right rebels are focusing their remarks, I think it would benefit those folks to focus on one aspect and one aspect only. Make that your hill to die on. Don't tie in all of this together into one situation. Make Distill an argument to the American people and make it easy. People need to understand exactly the issue that you're willing to shut it all down for. Then maybe the voters will not actually blame you. Again, I'm Josh Hammer filling in for Jason Rance. We'll be right back at the top of the next hour.